invite you this morning uh, to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. Now, if you've been with us over the last five years, we have been studying uh, through the Psalter. And there have been a number of songs which contain images and ideas that seem very unchristian at first glance. There's a whole category of psalms called imprecatory psalms. These are prayers for divine judgment that will fall on the enemies of God's people, those we've dealt with, and uh, we've had to go through those and, and try to do those justice. And then a there's other statements, and, and this psalm is not an imprecatory psalm, but it, it's going to include something of this kind. And these psalms have generated um, objections and uh, controversy within the Christian church over the years. And it's not new. Um, Christians have struggled throughout the entire history of the church to know how to interpret and apply some of the statements and images that are found in the Psalms. Now we come to the end of the book of Psalms. Psalm 149. Actually, if you want to probably be technical about it, Psalm 149 is probably the last Psalm in this altar. Really. Now I know you say, wait a second, it says Psalm 150 right after that. I know. That's because Psalm 150 is really more of a doxology, more of a of a kind of a closing praise that's tacked on the end. And I'm not saying it isn't significant. We're going to look at that in two weeks. And it's very important and it's a powerful moving uh, piece of, of, of prayer and song. And, and song. However, uh, it, it's kind of intended to kind of be the, the exclamation point on the end, if you will, right, of the whole book. And so in, in, in some ways, this is really the end, Psalm 149. And... You might think that we've gotten past all of the difficult parts. I mean, right in the very end, you wouldn't put anything really tricky here, right? I mean, this is what this is the time when you just want to have flowering praise and 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 trumpets sounding, and you want to have that uh, that crescendo as we as we glorify the Lord. Um. Well, I mean, and as we as we've noted too, the last five Psalms, right, one forty seven. Uh, or rather 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. Each of these psalms begin and end with the same Hebrew word. Anybody Has anybody figured out by now what that word is? I've told you. Hallelujah, right? Each of these psalms begins and ends with that. Um, the New King James translated translates that praise the Lord, which is what that means, praise Yahweh. Um and, and so these psalms begin and end with that. So you go, well, that, that's all this is about. We're just praising the Lord. Nothing difficult here. Nothing controversial here. Well, you'd be mistaken if you thought that, right? Psalm 149 has troubled interpreters in many times and places, but especially in the modern Christian world. And commentators um, do a lot of work to try to figure out how to explain this psalm, or in some cases explain it away, unfortunately. But what is it about this psalm that makes it so difficult or even distasteful to interpreters? Well, let's take a look at it and let's find out. So let's read Psalm 149 together. Look at whether you can follow along with me there. He begins, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. 
Sing to Yahweh a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise Yahweh. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we study and examine this psalm today. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of opening up our Bibles, of reading for ourselves in our own, uh, in our own native tongue. We recognize that not everyone in the world has that privilege. There are people around the world that cannot read the Bible for themselves, cannot own a Bible. And in some cases, there doesn't even exist a Bible in their own language. And Father, we are blessed. Thank you for that gift. Help us now as we come to your word. Father, I pray that you would use the word that you have spoken by your spirit. You have preserved and that you have uh, have given us today. Father, use that as your trumpet, your, your declaration today that you would speak, that your voice would be heard. Father, I pray that you would help me Uh, not to in any way obstruct that. Use me to be your mouthpiece, your instrument, so that your word could be clearly declared and proclaimed. Father, most of all, I pray that you would give us hearts to believe the truth and to respond rightly by submitting to you and your your word and your will, by being obedient and glorifying you today as you ought. Father, we pray that you would do all of this because of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, you'll notice, and as we read through it, I think you probably could tell, there's nothing especially controversial about the first five verses of Psalm 149. But the last four verses, beginning in verse 6, that really are what create the biggest problem. How are we supposed to explain and apply the call for God's people to have his praises in our mouths and a two-edged sword in our hand? Is this a, a call for some sort of holy war? Are we to engage in some sort of jihad, if you will? Should Christians seek to take up weapons in an effort to avenge the Lord and bring judgment to the nations? Well, some of the commentaries that I, that I uh, read this week suggested that that has actually been done, that, that at different times in history, uh, this psalm has been appealed to to justify uh, Christians going to war. I actually couldn't find any proof of that. I just saw some people who said it, but I'm not actually sure that that's true. But either way, that. I suppose it's possible. We could argue that this psalm is teaching us Christians go out and fight for God and go out and do some sort of war. On the other hand, most interpreters, I think, kind of shrug off 
the last half of this psalm. We, we've noted this before. As we're going through and we come across difficult things, sometimes interpreters will, will just uh, kind of dismiss a portion of the psalm and say, well, that's not really for, for Christians today, or it doesn't really apply that way, or, or somehow it's a spiritual concept or, or something else. And, and many uh, interpreters will, will, here's what they'll do. They'll look at the second part of this psalm, the two-edged sword, executing vengeance and, and all that. And here's what they'll say. They'll say, well, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for destroying fortresses. And then Paul goes on to explain what exactly those fortresses are. He says we are destroying speculations, ideas. And the and, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so they'll look at this psalm and they'll say, well, this part of the psalm is really for Christians. We're talking about spiritual warfare. We're talking about the sword of the spirit, Ephesians chapter six, the word of God that we take up and we use to fight the war of our, of our, our thought. And they'll say something like, well, in, in the Old Testament, people did take up swords, but, but we don't live in the Old Testament. We fight against ideas. We fight against uh, falsehoods. And so this is just a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's not really talking about literal weaponry. Well, for those of you who know me, you know that I probably oftentimes don't find their conclusions very convincing. And I find those, th those attempts to explain this part of the psalm, essentially, um, I find them to be kind of taking the easy way out. Essentially dismissing what the psalm is actually saying and failing to really recognize what's going on. And I think in so doing, they misunderstand the psalm completely. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go through the psalm and, and simply uh, see what is going on here and how we can understand the psalm rightly. And I think when we do... The mystery of this and the difficulty is taken out of the way. And notice how the psalm begins. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The first stanza here of the psalm is entirely uh, focused on praise. Uh, and Ari, I can't get this to work, so I don't know if we can remedy that or just if we can move on through it. Um, you may just have to advance it for me. Um, but uh, it's a little bit different, though. Notice this, this psalm starts off. It's all about praise, the first stanza. But as we think about this in light of Psalm 148 that we looked at last week, in Psalm 148, uh, there we had this call. Remember, praise the Lord in the heavens, praise the Lord on the earth. And there was all of this kind of spelling out of all of the things in the world uh, and in heaven and on earth that were supposed to worship the Lord. And it included uh, living things and inanimate things, right? It included spirit beings, the angelic world, as well as the physical world, right? And it included uh, all of the people on the earth. And all of them were to praise and glorify the Lord. And it's right at the very end of Psalm 148, the last verse, verse 9, where he, he kind of, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 14, where he kind of zooms in and focuses down on a, a specific people. Look with me there, Psalm 148, verse 14. He has exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. 
And so after, after talking about everything in heaven and everything on earth, at the end of Psalm 148, he then zeroes in and focuses like for one line on the children of Israel, the people of God. Well, that is really where all of Psalm 149 kind of comes from. And in a sense, Psalm 149 almost is an extension on the last verse of Psalm 148. It's like after all of the things that are going to worship the Lord, now we look at, he mentions the people of God, and then it's like, no, no, we, we need to take some more time with this. So Psalm 149 then is really focused on this, this people. That's what's in view here. The saints, the, the faithful ones. And you notice that there in verse 1. It is sing a new song, or sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Verse 5, let the saints be joyful. Verse 9, the, this honor have all his saints. Three times this word is used in the psalm. It's the same word, saints. It's, it, it sometimes is translated faithful ones or godly ones in different versions, different Bible versions of this psalm. But three times in this brief psalm, this word is used. This is the focus of the psalm. It's on the saints, the faithful ones. And they are to praise God for his salvation. That's the first point. They're to praise God for his salvation here. The first stanza. And so what we have is, is this praise of the Lord. And this involves singing. Because he says there in verse 1, Sing to Yahweh a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Now this expression, a new song, occurs a number of times. I think seven times in the Old Testament. Six of those are in the Psalms. Obviously, this is one of them, uh, but it's not unusual that we would see this in the Psalms. But what's interesting about this phrase, sing a new song to the Lord, this idea of a new song in every instance is used to describe some deliverance that God has accomplished for his people. God has intervened. He has delivered his people. And in response for that, his people are to sing a new song. The Lord has saved his people. And they are gathering to worship and adore him and give him thanks and praise for what he has done. So in one sense, I think we could say this psalm is not necessarily talking about an average uh, kind of worship service, if you will. This is not a, a Sabbath day for the children of Israel. This is really a, a special call for them to sing about the, the glory of God in his salvation, what he has done for them. But there, there appears to be some sort of public gathering, the assembly of the saints that's in view here. God's faithful people are joining their voices to sing songs of praise and give thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, he further explains what he means by that word saints or faithful ones in verse 2. Because you notice in verse 2, he talks about Israel rejoicing in their maker and the children of Zion in their king. These are the chosen people of God. The chosen people of God, Israel. The nation that he elected out of all the peoples in the world. Now when we read here when in verse 2, when he says, let Israel rejoice in their maker, I think we see that word maker. We might initially think he's talking about creation. Right? God is the creator. And, and we've seen that uh, in Psalm 148, in Psalm 147, and in Psalm 146. Each of them reference the creative power of God. And so we, we have this theme. But I don't think that that's actually what this is talking about here. It's not talking about the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. 
He's talking here about Israel as a nation, Israel as a people. God is their maker. Well, in what sense is God their maker? Well, let's think about that for a second. The children of Israel, the children of Jacob. Remember, Israel just is another name for the man, Jacob. His sons, he had 12 of them. Jacob and his family were a nomadic people, kind of like the Bedouins today that live still in the Middle East in many places, living in tents, wandering from place to place, essentially following their own flocks. As their flocks move from place to place to graze, they would pick up their tents and move. And that's actually still today, thousands of years later, what these same Bedouin people do today. That's what Jacob and his family did. If you read the accounts in the book of Genesis, you hear, you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob moving from place to place, picking up their tents and moving. That was what they did. They were nomadic people. They were not an established nation with, 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 with borders, with cities, with, with uh, uh, you know, uh, unchanging homes. They, they were mobile. They were constantly on the move. Not only that, but we know that Jacob had 12 sons, and those sons then uh, essentially grew up into uh, 12 tribes. So the, the, the children of Israel were not a united people, They were actually made up of 12 different tribes. Oh, they were certainly related, but as being unique tribes, they were quite different from each other. And they they often did not get along. Not just sibling rivalry. These were tribes that, 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 that sometimes warred with each other. They didn't get along. Not only that, but of course, what happened? Well, they ended up becoming slaves in Egypt and being oppressed for 400 years. Think about that for a second. 400 years is a long time to experience oppression and slavery. And just compare that, if you, if you in your mind, to the American uh, slave trade from Africa. It lasted about 250 years. Their slavery lasted 400 years, more than 400 years. That's a long time for a people to be enslaved. What did God do? He took those people who had been enslaved, those people from those 12 tribes, those people who had been nomadic, never a place to call home, never a place where they could stay and be permanently located. And what did he do? He made them into a nation. He formed them into one people under his gracious care. And he gave them a law, right? He gave them a constitution, if you will, the law of Moses, which bound them together and established their government And so what we see here that's very evident is that the Lord made them and he rules over them. He is their king. That's what's expressed in verse 2. Well, the same thing that's true for Israel in this psalm is true for the New Testament people of God, what we call the church. Peter says this in his first epistle. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. By the way, he's he's referring, he's he's quoting and borrowing from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus. What does Peter say? What's the reason for which God has chosen you and I and made us to be a part of his own special people, the church? What is it? Peter says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. All throughout the book of Psalms, we see the Israelites being called to remember their exodus from Egypt, to remember how God had taken them from slavery and had made them into a nation, a people. We find them remembering that. We find them singing about that. Peter says, Christian, you who've been saved, you need to be always remembering and always singing about and always rejoicing in the death of Jesus Christ for your sins and his glorious resurrection. That should be the thing that you always go back to, just like the Israelites always went back to the Exodus. And so what we see is that he is our maker and our ruler in verse 2. But then he goes on to describe this praise even more in verse 3. He says, let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. Now, sorry, Greg. I'm just going to make a couple comments about this verse and then we'll move on, okay? I know you really wanted to go into this. Now, all I'm going to say about this verse is, is this. I think this verse shows the great diversity of methods and, in, and instrumentation with which the people of God ought to engage in worship and praise. Now, I'm not saying that we need to start an interpretive dance team here at the church. Okay, Sorry if you were hoping I was going to say that. not saying that. And I'm definitely not suggesting we should start rolling around in the aisles or engage in some sort of silly or sensuous display. That is not what this verse would teach us or anything else in Scripture. I do think, though, that sometimes we conservative Bible-believing Christians who are committed to obeying the truth, we sometimes fail to do justice to the praise and the joy that we find in the Scriptures. I mean, and I don't mean this to insult you, but if you stand up here and lead singing and look out at some of you, I mean, we can't even smile. I mean, let alone, I'm not talking about dancing and jumping around. We don't even smile when we sing some of this stuff. And we're singing about the most glorious, the most amazing, the most awesome and wondrous things imaginable. And I think sometimes we just don't, we don't engage as we should, to really express the joy of our salvation and the wonder of what God has done when we sing and we praise and we give glory to God. Worship has to involve more than just our minds and even our mouths. The, 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 the idea here in verse 3 is this is all-encompassing. This is whole body. This is whole self engaged in worship. And I think maybe out of a fear of going too far, and because we're in this very reserved, you know, we are part of the, the, the frozen chosen up here in the north, you know, that we get a little bit reserved and we don't really have much of an expression of emotion when it comes to our worship. And then maybe we, we overcorrect. 
for some of the errors that we see and some of the things that concern us uh, in the church at large today. And so maybe we need to be a little bit more open to lively expressions of praise. Let me just suggest to you, start by smiling. Start by having some expression when you sing and when you talk about the truth of what God has done. When you're giving testimony of it, when you're, when you're thinking of start by letting that lighten and brighten your, 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 your face. I mean, there's some little things we can do that we don't have to go, I'm not saying you got to go, go crazy here. But again, we maybe, we, maybe we should be more open to some of these things just to be a little bit more expressive in our praise of the Lord. He is worthy of praise. And it's not just their hands folded in our laps and very calm and reverent. And I mean, that, that's not the picture we get here. There's a sense here in which there is some excitement. There is some real excitement because of what God has done. And there is a, a, an inability to contain this excitement. Now, I want you to notice how he concludes the first stanza there in verse 4. He gives the reason here why God's people ought to praise his name. Two things he says. He says, first of all, that Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. And then he parallels that with the line that he will beautify the humble with salvation. A couple of points that are worth making here I just want to observe as we, as we talk about this. First of all, when God saves us, it is entirely his doing. He is taking pleasure in his people, right? He is beautifying. That word beautifying here means, uh, means adorning or giving glorious. Uh, he, he is the one who beautifies and adorns and glorifies his people because salvation is entirely a gift of God's grace. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we deserve. It's something that he delights to give his people. And again, I think we can enter into the, 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 the understanding of this a little bit when we think about how much we enjoy giving a gift to someone that we love, a gift that we know they, that they will like. And then watching them and seeing the ple- having the pleasure of them receiving a gift from us. And, 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 and those of you, you know, as we get older, we realize that is where a lot of the real enjoyment comes from gifts. Is being able to give a gift to someone, and it's not the gift, but it's their reaction that, that really is what we're looking for. You know what I'm talking about? When you give that, and what you're really looking for is their reaction, because that's what you want to see. You want to see them light up, because you take pleasure in the gift. You take pleasure in giving that. That's what we have a sense here. God takes pleasure in blessing his people, in beautifying them with salvation. God takes pleasure in that. So that's important. This is God doing this for his own pleasure. He gets pleasure from this. This is what he wants to do. He wants to save. He enjoys it. It's his, it's his means of, of, of pleasing himself here, taking pleasure in his people. But there's another thing that we need to recognize here, and it really kind of goes hand in hand because we need to see that not only is salvation a gift of God's grace, but salvation is for the humble. Salvation is for the humble, the lowly, 
those who are oppressed, those who have been brought low. Now, this verse doesn't say it outright, but it's, it implies it, that salvation is not for the proud. Right? If salvation is for the humble, if it's God who beautifies the humble with salvation, then by implication, he does not beautify the proud with salvation. You see that? You follow that? Right? He does not bless the entitled with salvation. He doesn't bless the arrogant with salvation. Right? If you believe that you're good enough, if you believe that you deserve something from God, if he owes you, then you're actually cutting yourself off from his help. You're cutting yourself off from his grace. You're cutting yourself off from the gift of his salvation with which he would bless you. Now, this is true for, for you today if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ and been born again. If you've never been saved and you've never had your sins forgiven, then, then the issue is this. You and your pride of self-reliance, you cannot be saved. Because God's salvation is for the humble. It's a gift that he gives to those who are low. So unless you're low, unless you're brought low, unless you're humbled, then you won't receive it. But I would say this as well. This is true for us as Christians. If you've already been born again because you've trusted in Jesus Christ, we have a tendency to still somehow, we, I know it's totally convoluted. It's totally backwards. It doesn't make any sense. But somehow we still have, have the ability to tell ourselves that we deserve better, that we deserve more that we deserve whatever from God and get all bent out of shape and we don't get it. And the reality is, even as believers, even as Christians, in our relationship with God, it is characterized by humility because that's who he saves. That's who he blesses. That's who he uh, ministers his grace to, is those who are humble. Again, the New Testament teaches this very clearly. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The same, same thing being said here. Now, we have to understand this principle because if we don't, the second half of the psalm will not make any sense. All of God's promises are rooted in his grace. Right? All of his promises, everything that God has said he will do is rooted in his grace. Why does God do what he does? Because he is gracious. That's it. There's no other explanation, no other reason, no other justification that we can give for why God would save, for why God would do the things that he's promised he's going to do if it is not simply for the fact that he in himself, in his own nature, his own character, is a God of grace. Got to get that. We got to understand that. Now, the second stanza, which begins in verse 5, is not devoid of praise. Right? I said the first stanza is about praise uh, for, our, for the God, God for his salvation, right? praising God for salvation. The second stanza is not devoid of praise, but that's not really the primary focus. However, it does speak about praise. It talks about the saints being joyful in glory and singing aloud in their beds. Now, this seems to suggest a different setting from the beginning, doesn't it? At the beginning, we had the assembly of the saints. Here, they're being told to sing and rejoice on their beds. Which seems to be a reference 
not to the gathered assembly, but to maybe a time when they're in their own homes. And it suggests that there has come a time when they are able to recline in their beds, when there is peace and relative safety, and they are able to be at home in in, in safety and peace with hope, reclining on their beds, reflecting on how the Lord has rescued them and giving uh, and has given them rest. And so this second stanza is definitely post-salvation, if you will. The people of God are reflecting on his gracious salvation by which they have come to know peace. And they are to have, he says, high praises of God in their mouth in verse 6. Actually, the word mouth there literally means the throat. And the idea is here is that it is loud, right? This is full-throated. It is very loud. There are loud shouts of joy. What we need to picture here again is, is after the battle, after the war has been won, and there's a victory and there's a celebration and there's a shouting. Again, probably the closest thing we come to today, if we, if we would, uh, as far as an analogy to this, would be at the end of a, of a ball game when our team has been victorious and there's a shouting and that kind of spontaneous uh, shouting and rejoicing of praise. And that, that's kind of the idea here. Again, it's, it's much more serious than that, but that maybe is the closest thing that we experience since most of us don't go off to war and uh, it's been a while since we had a victory parade uh, you know, of soldiers uh, through our streets to, to, to do this. Okay, But the idea here is that victory has been won. Because victory has been won, there ought to be rejoicing. So all of this is kind of consistent with the first part. But this is where we come into that reference at the end of verse 6 of the sword. Because along with this high praise of God, they are to wield sharp swords in their hands. Now again, we think about this, and I said this is, this is some sort of a victory celebration. Maybe we would explain this and say, well, you know, when the warriors come back from the battle, sure, they're shouting, and they've got their swords in their hands, and they're waving the swords around and going, yeah, we won the victory, and, and God gave us a victory, and he's great. I suppose today, you know, it's not swords, but we might, you know, you might see on the news when, when some place has been delivered or there's been some sort of victory and, and the people come out in the streets and they raise their guns and they shoot their guns off in the air. And, you know, it's kind of a celebration, which, by the way, just as a side note, it's really, really not a good idea to do that. Um, those bullets go up. They have to come down somewhere. It's very dangerous, but I don't recommend that. Anyways. I don't really think that's what's in view here. And the reason why is that he tells us the purpose for the swords in the, the next verses. He tells us why is it that they are to have the swords in their hands. It's not just because they're expressing praise at what God has done. Because notice what he says. The purpose of the sword is to execute vengeance and punishments, verse 7. Binding uh, with chains and fetters of uh, iron, verse 8. And executing written judgment in verse 9. The swords in their hands are serving a real purpose. It's not symbolic. It's not metaphorical. So what's going on here? And how should we think about this today? Well, the second stanza is instructing God's people to prepare for the coming of God's kingdom. To prepare for the coming of God's kingdom. The initial act of deliverance and salvation is past. But there are still promises of God yet to be fulfilled. 
I think this is true. Certainly was true in the Old Testament era. Um, we, we don't know when this psalm was written for sure. Again, we, we look at these, these last five psalms in the Psalter, and there's not anything specific that tells us when they were written. Most, most uh, interpreters suspect they were written uh, at the time of the return from the exile under men like Ezra and Nehemiah, when the children of Israel had been gone into captivity in Babylon and Persia, and they come back and they begin to rebuild the land. And so in, the, in that context, if that's the context here, you could picture the people rejoicing in God's salvation and what he had done to preserve them, even in that captivity, and then to bring them back. And now they've been rebuilding, and they've got the wall finished, they've got the temple finished, they're beginning to rebuild and restore, and they could sing praise and say, wow, look back at what God has done. And at the same time, at the same time, there were promises yet to be fulfilled. Right at the same time that they would say, well, look at what God has done in his salvation. They could say, boy, there's still a lot yet to come. There's a glorious hope of the future that's been promised. And the future, and this is important, the future for Israel involved the judgment of the nations at the coming of the kingdom of God. I'll give you some examples. Take, take the, the vision of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, in Daniel 2, he describes a vision of a figure, a figure of a man who's made up of different metals. And each of those metals represents a different human kingdom, right? A different worldly kingdom, an earthly kingdom. But then he says, there's another thing that comes into view. And let me read what he says here. He sees a stone that was cut out without hands. And in his vision, this stone comes and strikes the image on its feet, and it broke them in pieces. And Daniel says they were crushed together and became like chaff. And the wind just blew them away. All of the kingdoms of the world crushed by this stone. Daniel explains what that is. It's the kingdom of God coming down from heaven coming to earth and crushing into dust every kingdom of man, every kingdom of this world, bringing them forcibly into submission to God and to his Christ. And that same basic framework could be, could be duplicated in dozens of Old Testament passages that speak about the coming of the kingdom. But what's really interesting is that in many instances, when we read in the Old Testament about the coming of the kingdom, and it talks about the judgment that is going to fall on the kingdoms of this world, in many cases, it, it, it suggests, or it in some cases, flat out declares that Israel is going to be the means by which God executes judgment on the nations. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, Isaiah 41 Verses 14 to 16 says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says Yahweh, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, now listen, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in Yahweh and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The Lord says, I'm going to make you Israel. 
You're going to be like the, the threshing sledge and the mountains are going to be like chaff and they're going to be crushed underneath you. Or consider this, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 6. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all of the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. And there are many others we could look at if we had the time this morning. And I think that's what's in view here in Psalm 149. The psalmist is looking at the reality of divine judgment on this world. Right? Judgment is going to come on this world. And I want to point out a couple things here that we see. The first thing is this, that judgment is the work of God through the hands of men. Judgment is the work of God through the hands of men here. God is the one who's going to subdue all kingdoms and every nation is going to be brought into subjection to his will. No nation is excluded from this. He mentions here the nations and the peoples in verse 7. These two terms refer to the various ethnic and tribal groups all over the world. With specifically a reference to all of the non-Jewish peoples. That's essentially what's in view there. And that's fitting because the Jews, the Israelite people, are the ones who are doing this, who are executing the judgment on these nations. This is not a call for God's people to take up arms and try to bring in the kingdom through force. Very simply, it's this. The Lord is going to usher in his kingdom. But his people, Israel, are going to serve as the means of bringing judgment on the nations. That is what the, the, the scriptures teach. And Psalm 149, I think, is, is alluding to that here. The judgment on the nations that God is going to send will come through the means of his people, the children of Israel. That will happen. That is a future event yet to come that this psalm is looking forward to. Now, there's another important point about judgment here that we need to note, and that is judgment is the fulfillment of God's word. Judgment is the fulfillment of God's word. He says this in verse 9, that the judgment is written. Right? That means it is not arbitrary. It is not done in the heat of the moment. God doesn't just get mad enough one day that he blows up and loses it over all the people and says, enough is enough. I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to judge you all. No. This is the promise of God. He has promised to judge the world. He has declared that he will bring every word and every thought and every action into judgment, and he will keep his promises. And as we have noted so many times before, the judgment of God is really the outworking of his salvation. They're really two sides of the same coin. God is going to save his people. And then his saved people are going to be those who participate then in his coming kingdom and the judgment that he is going to mete out on the world. That is what is in view in the second stanza of Psalm 149. So this psalm is really a fascinating, uh, fascinating song when you think about it. Because on one hand, this psalm 
involves looking back. Looking back at the salvation that God has accomplished for his people. And we, just as the Israelites could do this, looking back at what God had done in, in bringing them from Egypt and making them a nation and in, and in ruling over them as their king, we today can do the same thing. We can look back at what God has accomplished. How did God accomplish salvation for you and for me? He sent a son, his own son, to the world who took on human flesh, who lived perfect and sinless, and who went to the cross, bearing our sin, dying as a substitute, as a sacrifice in our place. And then on the third day, rising again from the dead, so that you and I could be declared righteous by God, if we'll believe on his name. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him? Have you been saved? Have you experienced all that, the, that, that God has promised because he sent his son for you, because he died for you, because he rose again for you? Have you experienced that? Have you, uh, have you identified with Christ? We, we talk about that. In Christ, we have all of these things, the salvation, the redemption of our sins, and all the, the blessings. Have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him? If you haven't, then today we would invite you to do that. Again, this psalm teaches us that God takes pleasure in his people and he delights in, in granting salvation to the humble. This is what God loves to do. And so if you would come to him today and you would humble yourself and you would confess that you're a sinner, that you need to be saved, he will save you. Because Jesus died and paid the full price, the full debt. It's all paid. If you come to him, he will receive you. He will forgive you. And he will grant you eternal life. Now we, who are Christians, who are already born again, who've already trusted in Jesus Christ, one of the things that we do on a regular basis is we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that today here in just a moment. We're going to celebrate the Supper that Jesus Christ established. And, and, and there's an important aspect of that. Why is it that we come and we are to partake of a, of a, of a, of a small piece of bread and, and, a, and a cup with a small amount of, of juice? And why are we doing that? Because we're supposed to remember. Right? Psalm 149 says you need to remember this. You need to look back at what God has accomplished in your salvation. Christian, we partake of the Lord's Supper for the same reason, because we need to remember you need to remember that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That he uh, gave up his body to be broken for you. That he poured out his blood when, he, when his hands and his feet were, were, were punctured, when his, his body was, was torn, when, when his, his side was, was opened up by a spear, and he bled for you. And it was his blood. It was his blood that cleanses your sin. And so we need to partake of these elements to remember that, to remember what God has done for us. But as I said, this psalm involves not just the looking back and remembering, but it involves the looking forward to the future. 
The psalm hinges there in the middle. We, 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 we praise the Lord for his salvation, then we prepare for his coming kingdom. There's going to come a day when Christ is going to bring all nations and all peoples into subjection to God the Father. And the servants of Christ, his servants, are going to rule and reign with him on the earth. This is the hope of his people. Wrongs are going to be made right. Justice is going to be done on the earth. You can imagine the Old Testament Israelites singing this psalm with tears in their eyes as they rejoiced in what God had already done, but they looked forward and thought, boy, there's coming a day when everything is going to be set right. When all of the injustices and wrongs and wickedness are going to be dealt with. When the written judgment of God is going to be executed on the earth to a T. And of course, then we, as New Testament Christians, we see that Jesus renewed this same hope, didn't he? This, this hope wasn't fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Jesus came. He died for our sins. But that night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, as he was preparing for his own death, he sat there with his disciples and he instituted the Lord's Supper. And what did he say to them? Yes, Paul says we're supposed to remember his death. But then Jesus said that there was going to come a day when he would do this again with them in his Father's kingdom. The writer of Hebrews affirms it this way. In Hebrews 9, he says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Are you eagerly awaiting the appearing of Jesus Christ? Paul said this in Romans 13, verse 11, Do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Christian, you should rejoice in your salvation. But Christian, even as you rejoice, there should be a longing in your heart for the completion, for the finished work, for everything to be done that he has promised. There should be that, that groaning in your spirit as you look at the world around and you see death and pain and suffering and you say, this is not how it ought to be. But thank goodness, thank the Lord, there's coming a day when this will be done away with and all of that will be gone. All of that death, all that sorrow, all that sin, all the misery, all of that will be done away with. And Christ is going to come and he's going to set these things right. And justice will prevail. That's what we look forward to. And that's why we partake of this supper as well. Because we proclaim the Lord's death, Paul says, till he comes. It's kind of like when you're in the car with the kids and you're traveling down the road. You're going to grandma's house and you don't get very far down the road. You know, you're only a few blocks from home. And one of the kids says, are we there yet? And you go look out the window. Does it look like grandma's house? No. Well, then we're not there yet. Well, Christian, as long as we're partaking of this supper, we're not there yet. We're not there. But it's coming. And Paul says every day it's closer. 
I don't know when it's going to be. We don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know if the Lord's going to tarry. It may be generations yet to come. We have no idea. It may be today. All we know is this. Paul says, now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're closer. Still not there yet. Look out the window. That's not grandma's house yet. We haven't got there yet. But we're looking for it. We're anticipating it. Christian, are you looking forward to that day? Longing for the day when Jesus Christ returns. So this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray and and we're going to bless the elements that are here before us. Then we're going to share them and you be able to join and we partake in these elements together, I would simply say this. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you know him as your Lord, and you are, to the best of your knowledge, living in obedience to his will, then I would invite you to partake with us. Understand that that, that the, the bread that is here is just bread. It's a symbol of his body. The cup is just a cup. It's a symbol of his blood. There's no transformation, spiritual or otherwise, that will take place when we pray and bless them but they serve as a reminder of all that Christ has done for us. They also serve as a reminder that it's not, we're not there yet, but we're a day closer. And we need to keep our eyes on that coming day of glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have. We have a great Savior your son that you gave, the greatest gift that could ever be given on that first Christmas when Jesus was born of Mary and she and Joseph welcomed their firstborn into the world and celebrated that great uh, birth on that night and just in a lowly place and placing him in, a man- placing him in the manger and yet the Son of God had come down to earth. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his faithfulness, which qualified him to be our our substitute. He was sinless, and so he could be what John said. He was the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And oh, we thank you for the son that you sent who died in our place, who, who, whose body was beaten and brutalized and torn, whose blood was poured out, all because of our sin, all because of our rebellion. And even when we were still rebels, still sinning, still uh, enemies, you demonstrated your love for us through Jesus Christ, who died to save us. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ and the salvation that you love to give to the lowly, to the humble, to those who are cast down. And Father, that's where we are today. We don't deserve anything good from you. We don't deserve blessings. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve hope. We don't deserve forgiveness. We deserve judgment. But in your mercy and in your great love, you offer salvation. And you sent your son for us. We rejoice in that. And we thank you. Even as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ, our Savior.
We thank you, Lord, that the story is not done yet. That your will and your plan and purpose is still being worked out in this world because we see around us a lot that is wrong. And we see a lot of problems, even in our own heart. We still struggle with sin. And we still have, uh, Lord, that, that ongoing battle and war within us. The desire to do what is right, yet we fail. We fall far short. And oh, Father, we, we, sit, we, we despair sometimes. We get so, uh, so difficult sometimes for us to do what we know is right. The presence of sin just is a, con- a continuing um, evil and darkness that we face. And oh, Father, I know we can just get discouraged. I pray that today you would encourage our hearts, help us to remember not only has Jesus died for our sins, but there is a promise of one day when that sin will be done away with forever. When it will be removed, our sinful nature will be completely gone and we will be in glorified bodies never to sin again. We anticipate that day even as we partake of these elements. And remind us that Christ is coming again. And we will partake, we will share again with him in this meal with all of the the believers from the saints, from the church, when we sit together with him in the kingdom. And Father, we, we claim that promise. We cling tightly to it. And we use it for hope on these dark days. We thank you for this reminder as we partake of these elements. I pray that you would bless us now as we partake of them. In Jesus' name, amen.